0: Holy Spirit, would you come, it's your job to make Jesus real to every person in this room. This morning, the Bible says, Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, He will glorify me. So would you come right now, Holy Spirit, and do that work that only you can do. In the name of Jesus, amen. So kids, I'm going to need your help just a little bit here at the beginning. What holiday are we celebrating today? Easter. Thank you. That's awesome. Sometimes we call it Resurrection Day because it's the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Though what's interesting is there's another holiday today. April Fool's Day. That's right. April Fool's Day. In our house, and I think there's an interesting irony there that we're going to talk about. In our house, there's kind of an epic tale of something that happened on one particular April Fool's Day. We have a short video that you're going to get to watch here in a minute, but first, the backstory. The backstory is that my wife was serving lunch to our four children and another child whom she was caring for that day. The kids were on spring break and it was the week leading up to Easter, but it happened to be April Fool's Day. And Luke is probably five or six in this video. And it's important to know that one of his favorite things to eat for lunch was macaroni and cheese. So keep that all in mind as you watch this video of my wife serving them their lunch, which was meatloaf, mashed potatoes and gravy and green. So today's a day when we like to play tricks on somebody and we like to say, April fools, right? Which is kind of to say, I tricked you or to be a little more maybe mean spirited about it. "I, I made you out to be a fool. And I have a hunch that there might be some folks here, and if there's not any folks here, there's a whole lot of them that we're going to encounter in the rest of the day and that you encounter in the week and in your workplace and in your schools who when they hear, he is risen, they think, April fools. Like, that's a joke. Like, you're the fool. You're deluded for thinking that. You're foolish for thinking, he is risen. As I think about the folks who might respond to, he is risen with April Fools, I can't help but think about some some mythic stories, some real epic tales that a lot of us are familiar with and how in each one of these epic tales that gives us this this vision and this notion that there's way more to life than meets the eye. There's a lot more going on around us than what we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands. In each one of these mythic tales, there's, there's there's always a critic. There's always a naysayer. There's always somebody who says, April fools, you're a fool for thinking, that there's more to life than meets the eye. So kids, maybe you can help me out again on this. In the Harry Potter series, who, who are some, some really big naysayers? Malfoy, okay. I'm thinking of some people who, well, let's hear, Addy. Voldemort, okay. Fortunately, we can say that name around here. We're not scared. Who are some people in the story who say, magic's not real. We're not gonna talk about magic. You're foolish for thinking about magic. The Dursleys, the Dursleys. Okay, how how about in Star Wars? Who's the person who says, man, the force. There ain't no force. Han Solo very good. It's going to be interesting when his movie comes out to see how they work that into his backstory. Okay, here's one just for the adults, maybe, probably. Uh, Not sure how some of you folks roll at home, but The Matrix. Who's the person in The Matrix who, who ends up saying, you know what, this whole, like, there's more to life than the juicy steak that doesn't taste like, it's not real, like, Who's the naysayer? Cypher. Cypher. Right? He's the guy in the end who's just like, you know what? Forget it. I'd rather just pretend like what's right in front of me is all there is. Okay, how about, how about in the Narnia stories? This one's a little trickier because the naysayers, they just play a, 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 yeah, Addie, what do you think? Adam. I don't remember Adam. Edmund. Yes, very good. When Lucy first goes into the wardrobe and she comes back out and she tells Peter and Susan and Edmund, hey guys, guess what? I, who? Susan, yes, Peter and Susan and Edmund. When Lucy tells those three, hey guys, guess what? I found a whole new world. What do they think? April Fools. You're foolish. How could you ever believe that? I think these these naysayers, these critics, it's interesting in these stories, if you think about these mythic stories, we're not drawn to those characters, are we? We're not drawn to those characters. Nobody wants to grow up and be Mr. Dursley, right? We wanna believe in magic. We wanna walk in the magical world. But here's the strange reality. In the world in which we actually live, not the world of mythic stories, but the, the actual world that we live in, which is a mythic story, there's a growing consensus that what you see is all there is. That if you believe he is risen, you're a fool. There's a growing consensus. And and I have a feeling there might be somebody here this morning who thinks, yeah, he is risen. Yeah, I'll I'll maybe respond because we're, you know, in this communal event. But honestly, in my heart of hearts, that's foolish. That's foolish. And if that's you here this morning, I'm just gonna throw all my cards on the table and tell you what I'm hoping happens this morning. I'm hoping that every person walks out of here saying, he is risen indeed. I'm honestly hoping that. And you might, me telling you that might actually increase your perspective of how foolish I am. You thought I was a fool at first for even believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But now the fact that I want you to become convinced of that too makes you think I'm even more foolish. And I say, I'm glad to be an example to you of a fool. I'm happy to be. I'm happy to be. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to together construct a list of the types of things that we believe as humans, types of things that we believe as humans are wise. As I've talked a little bit about what the world calls foolish, but what do we as humans, what what do we think is wise? What do we think is maybe valuable? What do you think? What's that? Higher education, okay, good. Knowledge, wealth, absolutely. Money, possessions, what else? Okay, good, power or influence. Okay, morality, okay, owning a house. So possessions, owning a car, good. Now we think stuff, having stuff is good. Okay. Playing it safe. Technology. Went over here first and then over here. Fame. Okay. Good. Notoriety. People viewing you in a certain way. Okay. Toys. Good. More stuff. We're piling up the stuff pile. What else? What do we value? Friends, family, reputation. Okay. Sarah, did you say something? appearance. Good. What the impression that we make on other people, which relates to reputation. How about human effort? How about just like good old-fashioned hard work? We say like that, like you should do more and try harder. That's the best way to live. Okay. So there's kind of our list, right? Like, oh, we didn't mention beauty either. Okay. So beauty, possessions, power, stuff, influence, ability, intellect. How about eloquence? We really value eloquence. So here's that list. Okay, now what are the things that we as humans, what do we call, what do we call foolish? What's on the other side of that equation? Okay, dependence, good. Being in need. Okay, the creative spirit. Say more, a little more about that, Rebecca. Good, good. So the riskiness of, of being creative. Sort of putting yourself out there, being a little messy. What? Humility. Great. We look at that as, that's, that's foolish. You should be selectively humble, right? Like there's a time to, you know, just put enough humility out there to really gain people's trust. But man, you don't want to like crawl around on the ground all the time. Failure. Good. We think failure is foolish. Poverty, very good. Vulnerability, submission. Okay, objectivity, all right. Very good, spontaneity. Okay, great, not taking care of our bodies. What's that, Finn? Polluting, you think that that's foolish. Okay, probably should think that's more foolish than we do. So if eloquence and beauty are also on this side of like, that's really wise, then over here, we would have to put like messiness, which I think is some of what Rebecca was getting to, or something that's not attractive, something that is broken, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to, it doesn't look the way it's supposed to. And we we would put like simple communication on this side of the equation, versus eloquence? Well, we're gonna look at a passage this morning where these same types of values were really at play. It's in a city called Corinth in ancient Greece. Paul is writing a letter to a church that was born in the city. He spent 18 months there. When he got there, he was weak, he was broken, he was discouraged for a couple of reasons. One, He'd gotten run out of the last two or three cities that he was in. And the city that he was in immediately before Corinth was the city of Athens. Lots of super smart people, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. That's where Aristotle and Socrates had hung out and trained lots of people a few hundred years before that. So a really super smart, like really successful place to be. And Paul goes there and he preaches and he gets made fun of. So he's run out of a couple towns, made fun of in another one, and then he rolls into Corinth. And he is like a dog with his tail between his legs. And he gets to Corinth. And Corinth is a city there where there's lots of wealth. And because it's less than 50 miles from Athens and was a hugely important city in ancient Greek culture, there's a lot of philosophers there. There's traveling Speakers who are very eloquent who will come through and dispense all this amazingly articulated wisdom to the people. And there's lots of wealth and there's lots of beauty and other things that I won't talk about because the kids are in the room. But this is quite the place. And so Paul rolls in to Corinth and he says, after being there 18 months and establishing the church, and seeing people respond to the good news of the gospel, people begin to sort of slip back into their previous value system. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, we read this. We're gonna read a bit of a lengthy passage. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 through chapter two, verse five. Listen for the contrast between what humans say is wise and what humans say is foolish. For Christ did not, oh, one more, sorry, one last thing that's very important in terms of background, very important. This notion that's very common today that like, here's what's wise, intellect, eloquence, beauty, power, money, and here's what's foolish, weakness, simplicity, messiness, disorder, vulnerability. What that ends up creating is a lot of pride and arrogance, which when it gets manifest in a group of people creates what we call tribalism. Tribalism says, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right because I have more stuff on the wisdom list than you do, I've got it figured out, you're out to lunch, you don't know what you're talking about, so we can't even engage in a dialogue because I don't have anything to learn from you. And the church is filled with this right now. And our nation is filled with tribalism. And Corinth was filled with tribalism. And so Paul's going right after the heart of that. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He says that because people were bragging about who baptized them. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, he quotes from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These really smart people who roll through with their eloquent wisdom and they talk to all the Corinthians. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. I'm going to read that verse again because it's so key. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, that's miraculous signs of power, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame, think, expose, expose the wise, to show them that they really don't have what they think they have. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are, and you should put not in quotes, not Because it's as if the Corinthians were looking at the weak and the broken and the poor and the needy and saying it's as if you don't even exist. That's the disregard and the devaluing that they had for them. So Paul is saying like, yeah, you guys are the knots. It's like you don't even exist, but God chose you to bring to, and again in quotes, nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So no pride no arrogance, no tribalism. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a simple message. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So here's what Paul's saying. He is saying that you cannot have human wisdom and have spiritual power at the same time. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have human wisdom and divine power at the same time because Human wisdom is actually foolishness to God. And human foolishness, poverty, brokenness, vulnerability, disability is wisdom to God. You cannot have human wisdom and divine power at the same time. So what I wanna talk about this morning is the foolishness of the gospel. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In human's eyes, the word of the cross is foolishness. The gospel is a foolish gospel. I wanna talk about three statements that are gospel statements that are foolish. There's probably a 100 gospel statements I could make and talk about how all of them are foolish in human's eyes. I'm gonna talk about three. First of all, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a gospel statement. We can't have the gospel without what theologians call the incarnation, which means to put on flesh that God himself left the glory of heaven Philippians 2 took the form of a bond servant, became a human, and put on human flesh fully. That's the incarnation. You can't have the gospel without that. Jesus is God in the flesh. Why is that foolishness in the eyes of humans? One thing I forgot to tell you about the city of Corinth is that it was filled with pagan temples they've got their their history of greek mythology corinth was a big bursting greek city until about 140 AD when it was or BC when it was destroyed by the romans and it was in ruins for about 100 years until the romans rebuilt it about 46 BC so you've got roman mythology influencing culture in corinth and you've got greek mythology influencing the culture in corinth city filled with temples. So everybody is worshiping all these different Greek and Roman gods. Nowhere in Greek or Roman mythology do you have true incarnation. Nowhere is there a Greek or a Roman god who actually became a human. A human who like Isaiah 53 says, was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. No one wrapped himself in the weakness of humanity. See, we want our gods to be very different from us because intuitively we know we're weak. So when we create gods in our image, we want them to be strong and powerful, but... We want to have the power to manipulate and control them. And so if God comes down and says, I'm a human, I am weak and vulnerable and tempted just like you. In a Greco-Roman society, that sounds like foolishness because a God would never ever do that. And in our society, God would never ever do that. God, if he even exists... We certainly wouldn't want to embrace the notion that he became like us. I heard this week someone say that right now, one of the big epidemics in in the United States, especially, but in the Western culture, is self-hatred. Self-hatred. There's this this attempt to build an identity that's based completely around self and self-actualization is the path to salvation but see, none, we all know intuitively, we're no good at it. We're no good at it. Heard a friend this week tell a story about getting to meet with some people who you know, have lots of money, lots of power, lots of influence, everything at their fingertips. And yet they, behind closed doors in the right context, they're willing to throw their cards on the table and say, I'm weak and I'm broken and I don't have it all together and I need a lot of help. So why would humans like that want a God who's just like them in many ways. We wouldn't want that. Who are the superheroes we're drawn to, right? These people are either aliens from other, from other planets like Superman, or they are superhuman in a sense, right? Like they got bit by a spider and now they have all these crazy abilities, or they're billionaires like Batman, right? So. So yes, they're human, and yes, they have some weaknesses, right? Every superhero has his Achilles heel, but mostly they're very different from us. And the gospel turns that on its head. It says, no, Jesus became a human. Secondly, the second gospel truth that sounds like foolishness is Jesus Christ, remember he's God, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, That sounds like foolishness. And it sounds like foolishness for a couple reasons. Again, you've got this this Greco Roman mythological understanding of deity and how it works. And it's all based around I have to appease the gods, I have to keep them happy. Gods don't use their power to serve humans gods use their power to punish humans and control humans. But humans have a fighting chance if they can offer the right sacrifices and appease the gods and manipulate them. Does that sound familiar? We think we can control and manipulate God through our good behavior. We think morality is wise in and of itself. Regardless of why you're trying to be moral, morality is just a good thing. And I say, the Bible says your good works are filthy rags in front of a holy God. So that kind of morality is not good. God doesn't see it as good. And yet we are bent on trying to manipulate, control a God rather than saying, I have absolutely no hope unless you step in to the story. But it's also foolish, particularly in the Greco-Roman context, and I think in our context as well, because just as the gods would not have come in and actually fully put on human flesh, the gods would never have suffered for the sake of their people. Because remember, they have the power, and it's human's job to manipulate and control and appease the gods so that they wield their power in a way that's favorable for the humans. And here we have a story This is why the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens thought Paul was off his rocker. Why in the world would God come and suffer for humans, especially through crucifixion? Crucifixion was designed to do two things. Be the most painful way to die. Very torturous physically. It's designed to do that. And secondly, it's designed to completely humiliate and embarrass and shame the person. They're naked in public as they die. That's as bad as it gets. So the message of the cross, that God became a man and then willingly went to the cross and died there because he loves you, goes completely contrary to everything that Greco-Roman society would have believed about a holy God. And it's completely contrary to what we say is wisdom. Because remember our wisdom list? Like power, money, influence, beauty. Here's what we say about that list. We say that list will save me. That list will save me. And Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, which leads us to our third gospel truth that sounds like foolishness, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins because you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Now that is the most offensive, most foolish thing that you could say in our culture right now. Because we look at that list and even though there's the behind closed doors, private quiet conversations with people who seemingly have it all, who are willing to admit that they don't have it all, even though we know that's true, we still say, I will work for my justification. I will prove myself and our flesh, the sinful part of us that we've all born with is like grabbed onto that so tightly. To hear that you can't save yourself, to walk out on the street and actually tell people that sounds very foolish. They'll call April fools on you. Who are you to tell me I can't save myself? The individualization, self-actualization gospel is so rampant in Western culture. It's very offensive to tell people they can't save themselves. But the message of the cross says, look, if there were another way, don't you think that God would have made that happen? If there were another way, wouldn't God have made that happen? Because here's what God did through the incarnation and through the crucifixion. God entered into your story in a way that you would never have expected and in a way where you look at God and you go, if you put on human flesh and you willingly suffered in my place when you're the one with all the power, then God, you're a fool. You're a foolish God if that's what you did. I've been reading this theologian from Ghana lately. His name's Kwame Badiako and he wrote a book called Jesus and the Gospel in Africa. He talks about how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to all these primal religions that existed in Africa. He's very familiar with the African context, with the background and history of African religion and how Christianity has come in. And in a, he, he kind of puts aside all the, like, and critiques in a lot of ways, like the Western missionary work and what it produced, and says there's a different stream of African Christianity where Christianity really came in and actually created a contextual African Christianity. It's super interesting. But he says, here's the thing, there's a quote here. Let's throw it up, that'll help me. The cross of Christ is God's response to evil. Leave the quote up there for a second. He says, the problem of evil is acknowledged by every religion on the planet, right? Nobody says, oh, there's no evil. Everyone says there's evil. Every religion has to have a response to evil. What's the individualistic, hyper you know, self-focused American response to evil? I think more or less it's karma. Like I'm just going to try to balance it out. I'm going to try to do enough good stuff, both in my own life. And now there's this huge social justice stream. I'm going to try to do enough good stuff for everybody else to just try to address evil. That's what I've got. I got self-effort. And I just want to go, how's that working for us? Not very good. That's our religious way of addressing evil in the United States of America. This guy says the cross of Christ is God's response to evil, showing that the will to suffer forgivingly and redemptively is the very expression of the divine mind and the logic of the divine love. In other words, you think God's a fool? No, he's the wisest being who ever lived. And in his mind, he knew that he had to willingly suffer redemptively and forgivingly for you to save you because there was no, no other way to make it happen. That's what he's saying. Do you hear how Christianity confronts every other notion of thinking? We're left empty, friends, without the cross of Christ. We have no hope. We have no hope. But the gospel doesn't end with the cross, does it? The gospel does not end with the cross, The gospel moves on to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's his summary of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The fourth thing that's gospel truth that sounds like foolishness, I told you I was giving you three, I'm giving you four. He is risen. That sounds like foolishness. Sounds like foolishness. Death is the thing that has held humans in captivity for all of human existence. How could a God overcome that? Nobody else is telling that story. Let's throw up Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What's that mean? That means Jesus became a man because we're humans. That's incarnation. So that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. Here is where we get to the weakness, right? What humans say is weak or, or foolish. God flips it on his head and says, you know what? You think all these things that are weak don't, don't amount to anything and have no power? Guess what? There's all the power in the universe, in sacrifice, in humility, in surrender, in brokenness, in vulnerability, because that's what God modeled for you and for me. He became a fool in our eyes so that you could be saved. And then through his foolish incarnation and his foolish death, that's actually how he defeated sin, Satan, and death. That's real power. That's real power. Greco-Roman mythology isn't saying, you know what? You You can overcome sin. You can be transformed and changed. It's not saying that. It's not saying you are now connected to a supernatural power who has all the power over every demon and angelic being in the whole universe. Nobody else is saying that. And by the way, that's part of why the gospel spread like wildfire over the African continent because they were paralyzed by fear of satanic forces. And when they found out that Jesus created them and had power over them, they said, Give me some of that. And no other religion offers power over death. Nobody. Nobody offers absolute guaranteed assurance. First John, many times John says, hey guys, you know I'm writing this letter to you because you can know that you have eternal life. Nobody else is saying that. They're saying, man, I sure hope you added up enough stuff or did enough good things and blah, blah, blah. And the gospel says, no, death is defeated. In the New Testament, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the reality of the resurrection, he literally talks smack to death. He looks at death and he says, where's your sting? You ain't so bad. That's the Rocky Three reference, by the way. Sylvester Stallone says that to Mr. T when they're in the ring on the rematch. Mr. T is hitting him. and says, you ain't so bad. That's what Paul says to death. You ain't so bad. What do you got? Come on, bring, hit me with your best shot because you can kill my body, but you can't kill my soul. That is how weakness... Gives way to true spiritual power. So, here's here's the punchline for all of us. If you're in the room and you are saying to yourself, either he is risen, yeah, whatever, April fools, or you're saying he is risen, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Please hear me today, attempt In the best of my ability, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, to preach a simple gospel that says, Your effort will never save you. Jesus Christ died on your behalf to set you free from guilt and from shame and from death. And from the isolation and the abandonment and the alienation that you feel deep in your soul from the one who made you and you want to come running home, Jesus Christ made it possible for you to do that. And to those of you in the room who say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. My challenge to you is this. Be willing to preach the foolish gospel. Be willing to preach the foolish gospel. Do you realize that your God became someone who looked like a fool and preached a foolish gospel and now lives in you to continue to preach what the world says is a foolish gospel so you could be saved? Do you realize that? If you did and if you do, then you would go, well, I'm gladly willing to play the fool. Are you kidding me? He played the fool for me, so I can play the fool for him. I was, for years, scared of what people would think. I wanted people to choose to follow Jesus because I made it sound like a wise decision, and I made it look like a wise way to live, honestly. And I had to flush that down the toilet and say, you know what? i got to be willing to say to people, no one's got their act together. Let's just be honest. Let's cut... The garbage and get right down to business and just say, we're all a mess. I'm a mess. I need Jesus Christ. He's my only hope. That's a foolish message. Last night, I got to go to a Sounders match with my son. We bought him Sounders tickets for Christmas, and we went, and I was standing there looking around the stadium filled with 39,000 people thinking about this message today, and a lot of these people around, you know, I'm, I'm judging books by their covers, but they seem like they're you know, upper middle class white people, right? So like, these are people that I don't want to think that I'm a fool, just being honest. And I'm standing there watching the game and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, if that guy who just slayed the national anthem would hand me the microphone and say, hey, can you just say a couple things before the game gets started? Would I be willing to, in front of 39,000 people look like a fool and preach the foolish gospel of Jesus Christ, the simple message of the cross of Christ, would I be willing to do that? And I was thinking about today. And last night I said, you know what, Jesus, I would do it for you. I would do it for you, knowing that probably two things would happen. There'd be a whole bunch of people who would go, that guy's a fool, that guy's a fool. And walking out of the game afterwards, realizing people would be elbowing each other, going like, hey, hey, there's that weird guy that like said Jesus died on the cross. But also believing in deep hope that in the midst of all those 39,000 were some in whom God was working. Some in whom God was working. Even if four people came up to me afterwards and said, you know what, when you were talking, it was like you were talking to me, all the other people went away and I felt like God was speaking directly to me. Or maybe 40 or maybe 400. It'd be worth it just for those folks. And so this morning, maybe that's somebody here. Maybe you're feeling like, man, God's talking to me this morning and I wanna respond. Well, we got a chance to respond now by coming to the table together. Communion table's over here this morning where we remember the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. The body's a great reminder of his incarnation. The blood is a great reminder of his death that when he died, he died for you because you could not save yourself. And be reminded that Jesus didn't just live and die for you. He rose again and sent his spirit into you. And my prayer is that all of us would be empowered by the spirit to walk out of this room and say, though we may look like fools, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Let's stand together. By the way, I meant to mention this earlier, but I wanna... Let's you know now that immediately following the gathering, we are going to have a baptism. Who's getting baptized by them? Nolan Meese, that's right. So straight down the hallway, right back here, you can find your way pretty easily to the pool, Lincoln High School swimming pool, and Nolan Meese is going to get baptized. Baptism is a picture of everything we just talked about that we lived a life like Jesus, we died to that old way of life like Jesus died, and now we have been, like Jesus rose from the dead, we've been raised to a new, new life, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we stand in the water, we go down into the water, we come back up to picture life, death, and resurrection. That's what's about to happen. So let me pray and then we'll go to the table and grab the elements and then go back to your seat. I will come back up and lead us through taking communion all together. If you have never responded to Jesus Christ, if you've never said, Jesus, I believe in you, I believe you're God, I believe you died for my sins and I believe you rose again. Randy and I will be hanging out over here. Maybe our wives can join us. If someone wants to come and pray during this time, we'll be ready to pray with you. Otherwise, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is the time to come and remember his death and resurrection for you. Father, thank you for the time to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ today. Jesus, thank you that through your resurrection, we know that you've conquered sin, Satan, and death, that you are our king, that you are king of all kings. You are Lord of all lords. You are God of all gods, including ourselves. And that you're reigning and ruling and you, the fact that you conquered death shows that you have authority and power over everything and all of creation. So we worship you as our risen King, in the name of Jesus, amen.